BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If you're not from California, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Think of the weather there. Is it severe drought, constant wildfires, or 75 and sunny every single day? In any given year, those could all be correct. But what about over the past 30 years when we talk about climate normals? That's where our guest today comes in. Dr. Daniel Swain is a climate scientist at UCLA, and he's been researching California's weather patterns and finding the connections with our changing climate. From atmospheric rivers of moisture to raging wildfires, we'll discuss why California and the West are susceptible to some of these phenomena and will reveal the challenges that come from studying these diverse but beautiful landscapes. Daniel, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marshall. Yeah, and it's uh, awesome to have you. I, I'm a big fan of Daniel Swain. He's a great follow. If you don't follow him on Twitter, he puts out some very good information. He wears many hats. Let me just give you a few of those hats before I come to him. He's a climate scientist in the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. He's a research fellow in the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather Extremes at NCAR, a California climate fellow at the Nature Conservancy of California, and the author of the Weather West blog, which you definitely should check out if you're interested in what's going on out west. He has a Bachelor of Science from UC Davis and a PhD in Earth System Science from Stanford University. So I mean, he's just, you know, there are, there are I mean, I, look, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in this field, weather and climate, but there are some people that I just look to for certain things. And Daniel Swain's one of those people that I have in my little short list of weather followers that I kind of keep an eye on on Twitter. So it's really an honor to have you on the show. And if you're familiar with or have listened to Weather Geeks, the first question I ask every guest is, how did you get into weather and climate? Is it an experience? Was it something you've loved since uh, you're a kid? Everybody, story, what's yours? Well, first of all, Marshall, thank you for the introduction. That all means quite a lot coming from you. Um, you know, I am one of those folks who really was interested in weather and the atmosphere around me from a really early age. I know that's not true for everyone in the, in the field and in the community, but for me, I, I have really early memories of watching storms uh, rolling from the Pacific um, while I was growing up uh, just north of San Francisco. So this really was something that I think has been in me for a long time. Um, there's a there's a couple of examples. Obviously, in California, you don't have the you know the the blizzards of my childhood kind of stories you have in other parts of of the country. Um, but there were a couple of really big storm events uh, in the 90s that were sort of I would say probably formative events for my uh, meteorology and climatology uh, career. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And again, a, a similar story to, to many of the guests that we've had on the podcast over the years, but definitely some, everyone has a unique nuance to it. Now, I want to make sure I get to this right up front. You have a weather blog called Weather West, and I think you started this, gosh, almost 14, 15 years ago, 2006 or so. Um, what was your motivation for the Weather West um, blog, first of all, because I think that was around the time that blogs were really starting to get going. And what's unique about your blog or what do you cover in your blog? 
Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Weather West goes all the way back to 2006, and this will give you an indication of exactly how old I am. That's when I was in high school. (laughs) So that was actually a project that started before I had any technical scientific credentials at all. Um, And it's something that I've I've continued with. Obviously, it has evolved uh, with me as I've evolved through that process of getting an undergraduate degree in atmospheric science, getting a Ph.D., studying climate science and then even beyond that. And so it's it's been kind of an interesting process for me personally um, to to sort of grow and, and, and watch that change over time. So originally it was sort of just an outlet for for me as a weather geek, uh, quite honestly. Uh, and you know, in California, there's at least the the perception that the, that the weather isn't very interesting. I think I think those of us who study it might beg to differ, but there, there there is some truth to the fact that for much of the year across much of California, uh, there there is a little less drama than there is in, in in many other places when it comes to the weather. And so there is this perception that things aren't as interesting or as active, and so not as many people talk about it. So there isn't the same sort of community conversation about the weather in California most of the time. And so there weren't the weather blogs. There weren't the same kind of weather websites. Um, there's, there's always the joke that, that the Weather Channel skips over California a lot of the time because there, there sometimes isn't that much to say. Again, not always the case, but there is some truth there. So for me, I think it was an outlet because there weren't that many outlets for that, um, for that sort of stuff in this particular geographic region, at least at the time. Yeah, I agree. And talking with Daniel Swain of UCLA and many other hats he wears, too. And I am glad that we're having this because I, I agree. I think the weather in the West can oftentimes we um, you know, often have some perception about it. And so perhaps don't talk about it. I was even thinking about that. As you know, I write for Forbes and I was going back through things that I'd written. And I was like, well, how many things I, I was writing something read, read recently on the Catalina Eddies. Uh, and I was like, well, how many things have I really written about? the West Coast in California. And so I, I could see that in even even my that bias even in my own writing. So you make a great point. By the way, I'm curious because in some ways you have a background, someone like me in the sense that you're kind of a weather person, but you also have some ties to climate as well. What do you consider yourself? Are you a meteorologist or a climatologist, an atmospheric scientist, all of the above? I, I get the same question. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can definitely relate um, to the I would hesitate to call it a crisis of identity because I actually think that all of those descriptions are appropriate in different circumstances. You know, sometimes I feel more like a meteorologist and sometimes definitely more like a climate scientist. I think if I had to choose one these days, I I choose climate scientists because I really have evolved from sort of a more general atmospheric science, short-term weather, meteorology uh, obsession, one might even say when I was younger, to I really have evolved more towards climate over time. But then again, my approach to climate and climate change really is through a weather lens. I really do think about sort of how these, how weather and aggregate makes up climate and how changing weather and aggregate is climate change. I mean, fundamentally, the things we care about when it comes to climate change are not really the mean state changes, they're the changes in in, in the variability and in the extremes. And so for me, I actually think that perspective and that particular trajectory through an academic career and personal fascination is actually really helpful because I have that 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 formal and informal background w- with weather, um, and have a, and sort of have used that to inform my approach to thinking about climate and climate change. Do you think, and again, uh, what's what's your bachelor at UC Davis? Is that meteorology? 
Yeah, so at UC Davis, the department is atmospheric science, so it's sort of yeah, good. Yeah. Good. yeah, and so and so I think when I initially decided that was the degree I wanted to get when I went to college, I, I really was thinking more along the lines of meteorology and sort of operational weather forecasting. Over the course of getting that degree, I think the world was changing and the science was really moving fast. And a lot of my, you know, some of my professors at, at the time at UC Davis were, were sort of climate luminaries. And so I really got me thinking about what are the big problems in the world? How can I apply what I'm interested in to something that's societally important? Um, and obviously weather matters too, but for me, the, the new thing was, was applying sort of this weather science from a climate perspective. And I didn't see as many people doing it. So I knew that's sort of what I, how I sort of wanted to approach it. I'm curious because I remember Weather Channel alumna, uh, Leanna Brackett, who's now I think at Quibi or something along those lines. I think she went to UC Davis as well. Did you guys overlap by chance? I don't think we overlapped. Just for perspective, you know, the West Coast uh, atmospheric science and meteorology programs are quite small compared to a lot of the the ones elsewhere in the country. My graduating class at UC Davis, I believe, was uh, graduating class of five. Sure. So it's pretty small. Um, so, but you know, it is the UC Davis program is a program that has quite the legacy over the years. It's been around for for a long time. You know, UC Davis has the legacy of being a, a land grant agricultural school, um, and those you know those schools around the country are often the ones that have had such a, a meteorology and atmospheric science focus, precisely because the weather is so important uh, for agriculture just day to day. It's not really an abstract uh, topic in those circles. Absolutely. And of course, you just described the University of Georgia, where I am. We have a small, smaller program compared to some of the giant uh, giants, like perhaps the one I came out of Florida State or Penn State or Oklahoma. But we, we serve a niche and we serve a role. So I, I, I can resonate with what you're saying. Let's talk about California weather. Um, how's it started off for 2020? Anything unusual? I, I recall some maybe some atmospheric rivers and some other things happening. But just give us your overview of California weather so far in 2020. Yeah, 2020 has been yet another really weird year, actually, um, so far when it comes to California weather, as with so many other things, it's been it's been quite a year. And it started out, you know, in a, a, with a spatial pattern that was particularly bizarre. And I think if you if you lived in Los Angeles, you would have had no idea what was going on in San Francisco this year and vice versa. Um, because essentially the weather pattern was flipped. It was, um, most of the winter was very dry across a lot of the state, but then the second half of winter and spring ended up being extremely wet in the southern third of California, which is where a majority of California residents actually live in that southern third of the state, since that includes Los Angeles, San Diego, and all the urban areas in between. Um, Obviously, Southern California is normally a drier part of the state than Northern California. Southern California gets most of its water piped down from Northern California for that reason. But this winter, parts of Southern California were not just relatively wetter than Northern California, but were actually wetter in absolute terms. And that is that is because essentially the northernmost part of the state was exceptionally dry. And in some patches of Northern California, it's actually one of the driest winters on record, it was not so in Southern California. So there's this weird dipole where Northern California was essentially careening towards drought and Southern California really sort of um, recovered from that incipient drought at the last minute. So as we sit there today, um, you know, the grass is still green in parts of Southern California and it is not in the North, which is a pretty strange setup for those of us who know the state. 
Yeah, as you're talking about that, I couldn't help but continue to think about one of my favorite music groups is a group called Tony, Tony, Tony. They're an R&B group based out of Oakland, and they have a, one of their biggest hits is It Never Rains in Southern California. So to, to think about sort of the, the interesting sort of flip and what we've been seeing in 2020 is so interesting. Um, I mean, I guess people do are familiar with the wildfires that often happen. We had some record-breaking ones in recent years. Uh, I think occasionally people hear about the Pineapple Express or Atmospheric Rivers. Talk to us in general about the backdrop of why California's weather is rather unique. I mean, I, I know it has to do with the maritime sort of uh, location, the, the cold currents coming down from the north, mountains to the, to the east of you. Tell us, just give us the sort of sort of climatological or synoptic setting for the weather in California. Yeah, so California... As as you mentioned, is is more interesting weather and climate wise than might meet the eye, at least to the casual visitor or a summertime visitor, and that's partly because of California's large size. It's a huge state; it extends latitudinally quite a distance, and then it's also geographically a really diverse state. So you have obviously a long coastline, the Pacific Coast on the western edge of the state. The eastern edge of the state is mostly uh, very impressive mountains, the Sierra Nevada, uh, which extend largely uh, north to south or northwest to southeast along the eastern border. In the middle of the state, you have essentially a vast central valley, um, sort of like a mini Great Plains almost, that extends both north and south of San Francisco, sandwiched in between these coastal mountains and much taller Sierra Nevada to the east. And then you have uh, these interesting coastal features like San Francisco Bay. So you have a whole megalopolis that's sort of centered around this uh, pseudo-coastal regime. You have you know, the, the rainforests of the North Coast. You have the, the really some of the driest places on Earth near Death Valley and the southeastern interior. So the geography itself is incredibly varied. You have that proximity to the Pacific Ocean, but you also have that proximity to the hot deserts and higher elevation areas just inland. So geographically, it's a very diverse state. And it also matters sort of latitudinally where the state happens to lie in terms of a global climate. So uh, California sort of spans the, the dividing line between the stable subtropics and the more unstable or active mid-latitude regime to the north. So you know, California is often at the latitude or just south of the latitude where the polar front is in the cool season in winter. So the jet stream is often over or just north of Northern California. So California sort of is this bifurcation point between an active pattern and a not so active pattern. Uh, and so and in California, and of course, the jet stream shifts uh, over the course of the seasons. It does this everywhere, but since California is already at that dividing line, it means that summer is drastically different than winter because in winter, you pretty reliably have cool weather and precipitation and storms. You don't get any of that in summer. Um, California, I think the most distinct aspect of California's climate relative to the rest of the United States and even most of the rest of the world, actually, is this really well-defined summer dry season where you know you it is entirely typical to go for three consecutive months june july august without a drop of rain in san francisco aside from maybe some drizzle from the marine layer um that is pretty unusual uh, globally to have that pronounced of a summer dry season in a place where you still have reliable rain in the winter 
And so those transition seasons can be tricky. You get the fall and spring where it sometimes rains, sometimes snows in the mountains, but it doesn't always. You can have boom years and bust years. Um, but it's that really distinct seasonality, I think, that characterizes California climate most fundamentally. And it really is due to this battle between the subtropical influence and the mid-latitude influence, which varies not just from season to season, but also from year to year, whether we have an El Nino event or a La Nina event. That sort of tells us whether that year will be a year in which the jet stream is close to or far away from California. And even from week to week within the winter, we get these pronounced midwinter dry spells and pronounced midwinter wet spells that are also dictated by the sort of transient influence of the subtropics versus the mid-latitudes. So there's variability in all of these different timescales. And if you only focus on, you know, sunny and 75 for six months out of the year in Los Angeles, which is fair, it, it often is, um, you miss a lot of this other complexity. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Swain from UCLA about the weather out west. I think that's what we're calling this podcast episode. And you just heard a nice sort of overview and backdrop of the weather in California or out west in general. Now I want to kind of bore into a couple of recent papers of yours, because I think there's some really interesting things in them. I mean, we're, we're, you talked about the more extreme wet and dry events across the state. You published a 2018 study focused on increased precipitation volatility into the 21st century. What were you getting at in that paper? Tell the, the Weather Geeks listeners. So just a couple of minutes ago, I, I mentioned that there's a lot of variability in California climate sort of year to year. So you have years that are really wet and you also have years that are really dry. And that intrinsic variability is a natural part of California's climate. It has been like that um, for centuries or millennia. That, that Wait, food. are you meaning to tell me that climate changes naturally? <laughs> You know that I'm being facetious here because as a climate scientist, we get that all the time as if we don't know that. All the time, all the time. And it's, you know, it's, and and it's funny sometimes that that's presented as an argument that somehow that humans can't be having an influence on climate that's different than the influence that that climate would have had naturally. Um, That's, uh, of course, climate changes over time and it can change for a variety of reasons. After, I apologize for interrupting, but I just had to get that in. It teed up perfectly. But oh no, I, 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 I led you to it. But the you know, and but the the fact that California has that intrinsic variability uh, really does um, sort of describe. It, it does give us some insights into how California's future climate is going to look in a warming world, because. In a lot of ways, in most regions, climate change is not fundamentally changing the background climate. San Francisco is not suddenly going to look like Miami or vice versa. It's, it's, it's sort of it's modulating or amplifying a lot of the things we already know to be true about the climate in many places. Uh, it can be fairly dramatic amplification in some, in some instances, but in general... Uh, the cl- the background climate doesn't change fundamentally. And so if we know that one of the c- intrinsic characteristics of California climate is that there are wild swings between wet and dry conditions, both from season to season and even from year to year, 
then one question is, okay, how does a much warmer, more energetic climate system potentially affect that intrinsic variability? And so we asked that question in our 2018 paper and essentially found that the swings interannually between these extreme wet and extreme dry conditions will become uh, more frequent and more pronounced. So even though this is already something that California is used to, we are not necessarily used to the amplitude or frequency with which we'll start to see these, these swings between extreme wet and extreme dry on the other side. And one of the interesting things to me uh, that came out of this and some other work that we're currently uh, doing now is that the increase in variability is larger on the wet side than on the dry side. So as you sort of alluded to earlier, there, there, there is a lot of focus these days and historically in California on water scarcity, drought, imp impacts on wildfire. And these are obviously really important. But one of the things that we, we, we found is that essentially some of the risks on the extreme wet side may be bigger than we had necessarily been thinking previously, and those may increase faster than some of the risks on the dry side. Now, that does not mean that we don't have to worry about drought or wildfire or that those things aren't being made worse by climate change. In fact, our previous work has demonstrated that both of those things are also being amplified by the warming that we've experienced historically and that we will continue to experience for at least a few more decades. But what's happening or what appears to be happening in California is that we're sort of seeing an increase at both ends of the spectrum, wet end of the spectrum and also the dry end of the spectrum. And so the way that's being accomplished is that if you, essentially you get more wet and more dry at different times, your overall average precipitation may not actually change very much. The, the, the arithmetic mean of more, more extreme wet and more extreme dry is kind of misleading because you miss all the really important changes that are happening at both ends of the distribution. And so increasingly, my thinking is surrounds sort of isolating the changes at both ends and looking at them separately because it really does look like they're both increasing in a warming world. And that's something that I, I mentioned when I testified before the House Science Committee last year, because, you know, a lot of the policymakers want you to tell them it's only going to get drier or it's only going to get wetter. When, in fact, in many places, as you just talked about, it's really an increase in both ends of the spectrum. And it's not really the averages that people will notice anyway at those extremes. And so I think this is, your work is quite valuable in sort of probing that particularly in light of some of the thing, backdrop that you've already described about California's weather and climate. Now, there's another paper that you uh, co-authored that's focusing on one of the sources of extreme precipitation in California, atmospheric rivers. So for our listeners, talk about what an atmospheric river is. Uh, is it the same thing as what they may have heard of when they heard the term Pineapple Express? And then tell us about what you found in that paper. Atmospheric rivers are, I think they're really cool. They're, they're really these plumes of extremely concentrated atmospheric water vapor transport. So really it means it's these ribbons of fast moving air that are extremely moist in, in the atmosphere. Um, usually, and, and mostly in the lower atmosphere, these are not happening primarily at jet, jet stream level. These are, these are features uh, in the lower half of the atmosphere. And in, in many cases, you know, just in the kilometer or so right above your head. Um, so these are plumes that um, when they essentially become attached to mid-latitude storm systems, 
uh, can produce really extreme precipitation when they when they come ashore. Um, interestingly, they can sort of occur over water without dropping a whole lot of precipitation. But once they move in uh, over land and specifically uh, over regions of uh, enhanced orography, so mountains, essentially these coastal mountains are really what trigger these plumes to drop a lot of their moisture as precipitation. And so obviously California is the first landmass that these atmospheric rivers hit when they're moving across the Pacific Ocean from west to east. And so uh, because California has essentially two sets of mountain ranges, the immediate coastal mountains that are maybe two or three or 4,000 feet tall, and then the Sierra Nevada, uh, a couple hundred miles to the east, which are essentially double that height, um, you get sort of two waves of orographic precipitation when these atmospheric rivers make landfall, first in these coastal mountain ranges on, on, the, on the windward slopes, and then again on the windward slopes of the Sierra Nevada. That's where, those are the watersheds that, that are essentially comprise California's major river systems. And these, these plumes, um, they're not a California-specific phenomena. They occur really over all the world's uh, global ocean basins, but they primarily uh, affect land on the west coast of continents because of the prevailing westerly flow that we have in the mid-latitudes. And in certain places, like uh, certain places that have so-called Mediterranean climates, including uh, parts of uh, southern and western Europe, um, so the, the Mediterranean itself, but also the Western Cape of South Africa, parts of Southwestern Australia, and parts of Chile, in addition to California. So some fairly narrow, um, but very uh, globally diverse regions experience a significant fraction of their precipitation from these atmospheric rivers. Um, not just a significant fraction of their overall water supply comes from these, but also a large fraction of the destructive flood events. So these are sort of features that can be atmospheric phenomena that can be blessing and a curse, depending on how intense they are and how quickly they come on the heels of, of another one. Um, so they, they're, they're both really beneficial from a water supply perspective, but they're also potentially very destructive from a flood perspective. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the WeatherGeeks podcast talking about atmospheric rivers and variability in California weather. And dispelling, we're blowing a hole, grenade right on this myth that California weather is boring or unchanging, because as Daniel and I both know, there are quite a few interesting aspects of weather. I want to stay with some of your scholarly research, though, as we kind of pivot to the last segment of the, of the podcast, because you've also been a, an author on sort of the other extreme in the hydrometeorological or hydroclimatic perspectives of California. Uh, talking about drought and connections to ridging in the Western and Southwestern U.S. So Weather Geeks 101 here, talk about what ridging is when, we, when I use the term ridging, and then what are the implications for drought in your paper? So when we talk about ridging, essentially what, we're, what we mean is some sort of persistent high pressure system, um, not necessarily just high pressure at the surface, but sometimes high pressure at some elevated layer in the atmosphere as, as, as well, mid-tropospheric high pressure, if you will. 
And the reason why this is so important in California, most people would associate high pressure with dry or dry and warm conditions. So that part, at least, I think is intuitive. The reason why ridging is so critical in California, though, is that, as, as I mentioned earlier, we have a really narrow rainy season. If, if we don't get our annual precipitation between the months of about November and March, we're out of luck that year because it certainly isn't going to rain in the summer. So if you have a persistent ridge, either right along the West Coast or just west of the West Coast, that essentially blocks the storm track and redirects the jet stream uh, to the north and, and, and all the storms that would otherwise make it to California during the winter wet season to the north, uh, then you've essentially missed out on all your precipitation that year. So ridging during just a handful of calendar months is critically important. Okay. Did, were, were you able to catch me? I, I, I lost you for a second there, but I think you're back. So I think we're good to go. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Hopefully that, that recorded I, I, on your I, end. I hope we got that, but I know you were talking about how persistent ridging could lead to situations where we have a sustained drought or heat waves. Yeah. I can, um, I can redo that if you'd now, like. Perhaps just, uh, let me just do a pause in case they want to edit uh, here. It may have just been on my end, but just in case. Yeah. All right. So you were talking about how, ridges really in the sustained nature of them can really sort of have implications for drought conditions. Yeah, in California, you know, the ridging is super important because we really only have a few months out of the calendar year in which to to get the vast majority of our annual precipitation. So during those core winter season months, if we don't see those storms, we certainly aren't going to make it up during the long dry summer. And so there, during those few core winter months, it's really important to know whether or not we have that persistent high pressure, because if it's present and it deflects the storm track to the north and ma makes those storms essentially move away from California during the few months in which we actually can receive them, we plunge pretty quickly into drought. And so really what we focus on is the occurrence of these persistent high pressure events um, in this region during the winter. Those are the critical months that are important for California. Yeah, and I want you to, th there's a question that I often get it relates to climate change. You've touched on this a little bit, but a question I often get that's counterintuitive to a lot of people is we expect that climate change could lead to a situation where we have more extreme rainfall events, but also more extreme drought. How do you answer that question with people? So, well, that doesn't make, that's counterintuitive to me. How, how, do, how do you approach that question? Because I think both of the, all of the studies that we've talked about with you, you're talking about extremes on both sides of the spectra. But if you go back and look at the National Academy's report that we did on extreme weather and attribution to climate change and other studies, we expect that those will increase. Just explain the logic of that to people. Yeah, and it is it is fairly counterintuitive. I think that's a, I think that's a fair thing to say. And really, it all comes down to the thermodynamic effect of temperature. Um, really, so on on the wet side of things, you know, as you increase temperature by even just one degree centigrade, you increase the water vapor holding capacity of the atmosphere by about seven percent. Meaning that with rising temperatures the ceiling on water vapor potential in the atmosphere goes up exponentially. So even for just a couple of degrees of warming, you've pretty substantially increased the upper limit on how much moisture can be in the atmosphere at any given point in time. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's raining more all the time, that you're getting more precipitation everywhere on average. It actually just means that you've raised the ceiling on the potential for the intensity of your precipitation. So that, and so when those conditions are realized, 
then you do start to see more intense precipitation and more extreme precipitation. So that's why we've now, these days, that's that's something that we're seeing in the real world. That's not just a prediction about the future, but that's something that we can detect uh, today. Um, so on the wet side of things, you see clearly wetter conditions with that exponential increase in the saturation uh, vapor pressure of the atmosphere, that Clausius-Clapeyron increase for the meteorologists out there. But on the dry side, um, something similar is happening because as the vapor pressure deficit increases with rising temperatures, so the gap between how much moisture is actually in the atmosphere versus how much moisture would be comprise a fully saturated atmosphere, that gap increases because as the temperatures go up, the amount of vapor you could have in the atmosphere is going up, but it's the actual amount of vapor you have is not always going up at the same rate. In fact, in most cases, there's a widening gap between those two. So when it comes to how much water do plant needs, do plants need, for example, or how much water is evaporating from surfaces, for example, that vapor pressure deficit and the increase in that vapor pressure deficit are critically important. So on the dry side, when we talk about hydrological drought or agricultural drought, those rising temperatures by themselves, by virtue of the fact that you're increasing the water vapor holding capacity of the atmosphere, ironically, that is also driving drought when it's not precipitating. So you have on both sides the direct effect of temperature. Now on the dry side, there's also some other things going on. In certain regions, you have changes in atmospheric weather patterns on a large scale that are also leading to less precipitation on average, which is something that we're seeing in many Mediterranean regions. This is true of South Africa. This is true of the Southern Mediterranean and certain parts of Australia. Interestingly, that is one thing that doesn't necessarily appear to be happening in California to the same degree as it is in other places around the world with similar Mediterranean climates. So in California, the main effects we're really seeing are the increase in water vapor on the one hand, leading to an increase in extreme precipitation potential, but the increase in the vapor pressure deficit on the other hand, by the same token, leading to an increase in the propensity towards things like hydrological and agricultural drought on the other. Yeah, that that that's you know amazing. This is as you can see. This is why I find Daniel to be the one of the most outstanding young scholars in our field. I, I thought he did an excellent job, really breaking that down because it's a tough concept for people to get when they think about some of these weather and climate concepts in a very narrow or linear way. I mean, you can't. You have to really think about it with a much more expanded view. So I really appreciate your discussion there. Um, in this last part of the podcast, I want to kind of circle back to meteorology and put on your weather geek hat again. What are the toughest forecast challenges in California or in the West from a weather standpoint? I mean, is it the microclimates or is it atmospheric rivers or is it fire, fire weather conditions? What, what, what would you say are the toughest sort of one or two top weather challenges? I always enjoy putting my weather geek cap on. Let me just say that. You know, there's 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 a handful of pretty distinct challenges. Most of the things that you mentioned are actually um, challenging under certain circumstances, but I'll focus on a couple that I think are are really important these days. Um, one is on the atmospheric river side. We've gotten pretty good about forecasting atmospheric rivers in an operational uh, weather forecasting context um, because they are features that are generally pretty well resolved by the weather models we have in use today. They are, you know, 
they're, they're features that are long but narrow and attached usually to some form of mid-latitude storm system. And these are, these are sort of phenomena that are pretty well represented by most weather models today. But the challenge is that atmospheric rivers are extremely narrow, sometimes only a couple hundred kilometers uh, in width. And so even if we know that a, a big one is coming, uh, it really matters which you know, one to 200 kilometer section of coastline it's going to affect. And those errors in where these atmospheric rivers make landfall in California are still pretty substantial. So we may know that one's coming a few days out, but we don't know if it's going to hit Oregon, Northern California, or Central California. And if you're worried about flood risk, um, it's very it's harder to prepare if you don't know exactly what's coming. And so I think there is this movement towards, in California, what are called... Uh, uh, forecast informed reservoir operations, literally using weather forecasts to decide how much water you need to release from dams and reservoirs, not once the rain starts, but just based on the weather prediction for a few days in the future. That I think is something we're going to see a lot more of in a warming climate with increased volatility because we're going to be needing to manage the risk of flood on one hand, but not wanting to lose too much water because of the increased risk of drought on the other. So I think these forecast-informed reservoir operations are a promising avenue, but also a challenging one for the reasons I just mentioned. On the fire weather front, I think there are some big challenges as well, because we haven't talked a lot about California's fire weather in, in this conversation, but you know this is something that usually peaks in the autumn. So actually not in the summer, but later in the year when these very strong catabatic offshore winds essentially these warming and drying downsloping winds blow from east to west from land to sea over california these can drive really severe wildfire conditions they've been responsible for most of the catastrophic events we've seen over the past few years in the state getting those winds right is a big forecast challenge is that the santa ana winds that you're referring to or that a colloquial what we may know them as yeah, in Southern California, these are the Santa Ana winds uh, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. They're colloquially known as the Diablo winds because wow. they come down the, the Diablo range. Um, they don't even really have a, 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 a well-described uh, name further north in California, but they can occur pretty much throughout the state at different different locations. And they're super localized. You know, these are these are you you imagine the atmosphere as a fluid. It becomes really obvious during these offshore wind events because you'll have extremely fast howling winds through these river canyons and then a mile away dead calm and so the microclimates are really important but the large-scale conditions also dictate just how strong these winds get and from a fire weather perspective we really need to know exactly where the winds are going to occur um, this is something that's coming to, to to the public eye recently with all these public safety power shutoffs in california where there are these massive multi-million person blackouts because the electric utility isn't confident that the power lines and the distribution system can stand up to the winds without sparking and igniting a catastrophic fire. So getting those wind forecasts exactly right and targeted geographically to where these lines are is turning out to be a multi-billion dollar problem that, that is, that is you know, a matter of life and death in the case of some of these fires. So we really have these big forecast questions that occur relatively infrequently throughout the calendar year, but when they occur, you know, they're, they're, they're super important and they're, they're they remain, they, they continue to pose big scientific and meteorology challenges. What, what, just quickly, what, what, if you were to put on your magic hat or funding hat, 
what do we need to get improve getting the wins right? Is it just finer model resolution, some type of observation that we're missing? I think it's probably both. I think I think high resolution, you know, modeling is a, is a must. I don't think it's 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 absolutely necessary for something like this. But better observations are also really important. I think what we're realizing is that when we do run some of these high resolution models in the wake of these fire disasters, what some scientists have seen is that the winds in super localized areas, in some cases, were above 100 miles an hour. We don't have any observations of that necessarily on the ground. So right now, we're sort of at a point saying, well, are these real? Are there really pockets where the winds get that extreme and we're just not measuring them because we don't have weather stations there? Or is the model overestimating just how strong these winds get? And right now, that is actually a difficult question to answer. So I think that sort of tells us sort of where we might need to head with that. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is where we're going to have to end it, unfortunately. But before we do, uh, it's time for the Geek of the Week. We highlight a super scientist, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is David Taylor. He is a school psychologist in the Kansas City area, but he is always giving weather updates to his staff members. David even has a Facebook group called Analyzing the Weather with MD to give updates to the entire Kansas City metro area. Now, if you or someone else you know is deserving to be a candidate for the Geek of the Week, be sure to follow our social media pages. Daniel, where can people find you on social media? I am these days fairly visible. You can find me at weather underscore west on Twitter. And obviously, if you're interested in California weather and climate, I'm also at weatherwest.com, which is the home of the Weather West blog. Absolutely. It's been a, I think this was one of the better uh, podcasts we've had because it really encompassed the geekery that we love as weather and climate scientists. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks again for having me, Marshall. This is Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And thank you all for tuning in to Weather Geeks. See you next time.